All right, as Tracy read, we are continuing in the Gospel of John. So if you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bibles are in front of you, and this is on page 887 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. We're going through the Gospel of John. I told you that the, the theme or the point of the Gospel of John is he's trying to show us who Jesus really is. And my hope is that we will be in awe of the Son, S-O-N, not S-U-N, awe of the Son. As a way of reminder, last week we went through where Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, and we ended that section where Jesus says to Nathaniel, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Little did we know it was going to be three days later. And that's what we're going to jump in today. How many of you, quick show of hands for me, have heard about Jesus turning water into wine before? Quick, come on, help me. Okay, pretty much everybody. Pretty much everybody. Do you know how fun that is to then try to figure out how you're going to preach or teach a passage that everyone's familiar with? That's a lot of fun. <laughs> but I'm trusting and I'm hoping in the fact that God's Word is living and active, as it says it is, and that it is timeless, so it's always timely. And I think that the Lord has some encouragements for us out of this passage today. So, we're going to go through verse by verse like we do and figure out what in the world is going on at this wedding. And is it simply a passage that helps us understand, or at least a passage that we use in the debate of, should Christians drink wine or not? Let me tell you that we'll touch on that, but if that's all you think is going on in this passage, then you've got a lot coming today. There's so much more here. There's so much more here. So let's start chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. We had just seen that Jesus earlier had just decided to go to Galilee. He was going to go there anyway. So this on the third day, yes, sometimes for some of you, when you hear on the third day, something else might come into your mind. What? Someone help me. He rose. Good. So there could be some of that here, but I think more what's happening is that this is the continual telling of the story of Jesus. Because you remember it was, and then the next day this happened, and the next day, and now on the third day. It is possible that this could be a a reminder that the Spirit does with His resurrection, but it's also continuing the events of Jesus' ministry. There's a wedding in Cana. If you'll remember, Nathaniel's from Cana. And it's saying that there's a wedding going on. Real side note here. Weddings, they're good. Weddings are good. Marriage is good. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, mine ain't great. The idea of marriage is beautiful, and it's been around since the beginning with Adam and Eve. And many of you know that we're living in a culture now that marriage doesn't seem to have much importance anymore. And I would say that that's extremely sad. The problem is, though, the reason that it's not as important is we have the wrong idea of what marriage is. It's not to make you happy. That's not the point. 
Now, that's a benefit for some of you. <laughs> me. It's a benefit of me. For sure. But that's not the point of marriage. Yes, you can be fruitful and multiply and have children and children and fill the earth. Yes, that's good and part of marriage. That's not the main point. That's not the main point either. We've lost in our culture as we've drifted further away from the Scriptures of what marriage is supposed to be. Do you know that Paul says in Ephesians that it's actually in some mysterious way a picture of Jesus and His church? It's a picture of Jesus and His church. His bride. So our marriages, that's why there's a covenant, because guess what? It's going to get hard. But Jesus promises to never let His church go. Now again, I'm sure there are those of you in here who are maybe struggling in your marriage right now, or you've had marriages in the past that have struggled, maybe ended in divorce. I'm sorry that that's happened. That's not how God designs it. But it is a consequence of sin. But realize that marriage is good. And a wedding is a great thing because it's a celebration that helps us think about the marriage. Well, guess what? There's a reason that we have this example throughout the Bible and throughout our lives because there's actually another marriage, like I said, between us, the bride of Christ, and Jesus. And there's a wedding ceremony that's coming. Something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we're going to touch on today. So realize that weddings are good. They're from God. Marriages are good and they're from God. Now the mother of Jesus was there. Who's the mother of Jesus? Mary. Mary. He doesn't use her name. He doesn't mention her name. In fact, throughout his gospel, he doesn't mention her name. It's interesting. I think the reason that John is doing that, John also never mentions his name either, his own name. I think part of what he's doing is he's trying to keep the focus where it should be. On Jesus. Ultimately, it's not about Mary. It's not about John. And I love you, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. So, the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. They got the invite. Now notice he's with his disciples that we've just gone through and figured out how they were called. So we have Andrew and Peter. We have Philip and Nathaniel, which some commentators believe that who's, that's who Bartholomew ends up. That's his name. His name was changed. And then there's this other one who hasn't been named, which I would submit to you as John. And there, notice they're traveling together. Remember, he was talking to them about following him, and guess what? What are they doing? They're following him. They're obeying. They're following Jesus. So they get the invite too. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, uh uh-oh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now why is she even involved here? Hard to tell. It's possible that she knew the family well enough that she was involved, maybe responsible for some of these things. We don't really know why. She could be. You ever met some of these people who, even when it's not their business, they're, in the, they're, in their, they're involved? If you can't think of anybody, once again, <laughs> that means it's you. 
Maybe she just really wants the party to go well. Now, again, these type of ceremonies could last a full week. We don't know where they're at in the ceremony, but to run out of wine is a big deal. It's part of the celebration. In a culture like that, to run out of what you should be providing for your guests would be great shame. It would bring on great shame. That's part of why she's so concerned about this. So when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. In essence, I want you to picture here, there's no wine, so the party must be winding down. It's going to have to because there's no wine. Now, I'm not saying they're all getting drunk. That's not the point here. They're celebrating. The wine at that time, it's true, was not as strong as the alcohol we have today. But we're going to see in just a minute that apparently it had something to it. Okay, But again, that's not the point of the passage. This response is interesting. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I know some of you ladies... And I know that you have children, even adult children. If your adult child, if you came to them and said something to your adult child, and they said to you, woman, what's this have to do with me? Like, I've tried that with Heather. She's not my mom, but still. Hey, honey, the trash needs to go out. So this week I was like, ooh, how can I try this? Woman, what's that have to do with me? (laughs) She's like, it has a lot to do with you. You want dinner tonight? Are you going to sleep on the couch? What's going on here? Jesus looks like he's disrespecting his mother, but what's part of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment? What's it talk about with your parents? Honor them. If we're not careful, we could start to see that he's not really honoring her here, is he? He's Jesus. There has to be another understanding here. Well, the first thing is this word woman, we do not have a great translation for it in English. We don't. Some would say it's not quite like, oh, mother dear. It's not there, okay? But it's also not woman. It's not there either. It's somewhere in between. Some commentators are like, maybe it's kind of like ma'am a little bit. Maybe years ago in America, maybe lady, perhaps, in a good way. Not like in New York in a cab. Hey, lady, pay me my money. Not like that. That's more the woman's side. It's something in between. But it is interesting that the word does create some distance from Jesus and his mom a bit. So he is intentionally doing that, but he's not disrespecting her at all. In fact, you know how we know? I love this about scripture. You know when he uses it again? On the cross. When he's dying for our sins, for his mother's sins. And he says, woman, behold your son. And he's talking about John. He says to John, behold your mother. And what happens there is John takes care of Mary for the rest of her life. So it can't be a disrespectful term. Make sense? Okay. It's important where he says, my hour has not come, has yet come. This is something we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. This idea of Jesus' hour comes in a couple different passages. I want to look at one quickly that comes to mind. 
You can turn with me to John. Let's go to um, let's go to eighteen. Bear with me for just a sec. Trying to remember where I saw it at. I'll look for it again and try to find it to you. But ultimately, what he's explaining is he says that he's talking about his crucifixion. And what he says is that his hour had not come yet in talking about his crucifixion. What is it? Somebody say it. 730. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, good, that's another place. Absolutely, thank you for that. In John 7.30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again, it unfolds more throughout the Gospel of John that what he's talking about ultimately is that hour being his crucifixion. So what ultimately... Ah, 12.23. I wasn't 17, I apologize. 1223, he says it. Possibly. In 1223, he says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, when some were seeking to uh, find him. Again in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice, voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And then John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he knew his hour would come. So again, Ashton, I think, just mentioned another one in 7 in 12, and in 13 here. It's this continual idea that Jesus' hour was coming. So when he responds, go back over to John 2. When he responds to mom here, he's saying, my hour has not come yet. So there's something about what he's, what, if he were to fix the situation, that would link to the hour, meaning his crucifixion. And so he has to say to her, Woman, and give a little bit of distance between him and her and say, woman, my hour's not come yet. Ultimately, here's what he's saying. I don't do my things on your time. Even though you're my mom, I'm on God's timing. I'm on the Father's timing. And this will start his ministry. We'll find out at the end that this is the first miracle that Jesus has done. So, look what she says. Look at her response. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She didn't take no for an answer, did she? He says, hey, woman, what's this have to do with me? My hour's not come yet. Then she says, do whatever he tells you. What I think we see happening here is she went to him as her son, her firstborn son. There's this issue. Now, again, Joseph may be dead by now. Her husband. He's mentioned when Jesus is young at the temple, but then we never hear about him again. 
So if there was a problem that needed to be solved, she would go to her firstborn son. But also, she knows who Jesus is. She knows he's the Messiah. And that has some, some to play here. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It seems like she moved from, do this because I'm your mama, perhaps, to faith in him that he's going to do what's right in his timing. So one encouragement that I have for us today that I think we can learn from Mary is do whatever he tells you. Right? There's this big situation. It's a party. The wine is running out. This is going to be shame on the family, shame on the bridegroom. This is going to be a problem. It's not going to go well if this happens. Do you have any situations in your life that aren't going well right now? Show of hands, please. Anyone? Has anyone something bad happening? A relationship, perhaps, with somebody else? Wife, husband, friend, distant cousin, sister, that there are issues going on? Perhaps you've got something else going on, a medical situation. Maybe the bills, the electric bills come and you're like, I don't know. Maybe you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality. Depending on what you're struggling with, it's a big problem. Mary says something simple to us today. Do what he tells you. I promise you, listen carefully to me, I promise you, whatever you have going on, if you will do what Jesus tells you, I'm not saying it will go away. I am saying that he will get you through it. And you will find peace. And you will find joy if you do what he tells you. Well, what does he tell me to do? Depends on the situation. But ultimately, what he tells you to do is to follow him. Read his word. Pray to him. Be with God's people. If you do those things, I promise you, he will change your heart and he will work in the situation. Let's move on. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars... There for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. You got it? Think a gallon of milk, 20 or 30 of those in one jar, six jars. Is there any significance to the number six? Possibly. Commentators go back and forth on this. It could show that there's some incomplete idea because seven's the perfect number, six isn't. I don't think we need to make a big deal about it. The stone water jars instead of clay ones is because the stone would keep the water pure better. But notice what they're there for, the Jewish rites of purification. So these stone jars, here was what they would do. People would come and they would dip their hands and wash their hands through these jars from the water from these jars or wash their bodies. It's to purify. It's part of the rituals that they would do. This is important for where we're going. Don't forget it. Jesus said to the servants, he's now decided it's time to help. Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So they go. Now realize that there's going to be some type of spring nearby or something. So this wasn't just like a a real quick thing. This took some time, maybe several hours. And they fill them up. He tells them to do it, and what do they do? They do it. And they fill it all the way to the brim. Here's what's going on. You need to see this. What Jesus is about to do is a different type of purification. He's going to show a different type of purification. Not the ones the way they used to do it under the old law where you wash with water. He's going to do something different. 
And what he's saying is, as you fill it, they go ahead and fill it all the way to the top because that's showing us that the purification Jesus brings is enough. It's full. You tracking with me so far? Okay. Here's what it is. This is we're having to put on our thinking hats here. And he said to them, this is what Jesus says, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. He's telling them to do it. They're doing it. Just like Mary said, do whatever he says. They're doing it. So he takes it to the master of the feast. Who's the master of the feast? Kind of like the MC, maybe. Master of ceremonies. He's the guy that's over all this. Orchestrating everything for this wedding. And takes it to them. I'm sorry, they take it to him. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Sometime between it filling up with water, they take it, and sometime getting over there, it turns into wine. He takes it to, they take it to him. The master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and they did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then the master of the feast called the bridegroom, so now he's calling somebody else. Now we have, he, you have wine. We don't even know if they knew they were out of wine or only Mary knew this. They bring the wine over or the water that turned into wine. He tastes it. Ooh, bridegroom, come over here. Why wine? Come on, we've heard this story a million times. Think about it for a second. Why wine? Why, could, why, why is Jesus doing this miracle? Hopefully for some of you, You'll remember every month as we take the Lord's Supper and we don't use wine. Maybe we should. We use the fruit of the vine. And it's talking about the cup. And he says that this is his blood that's been poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins, part of the new covenant. So wine, there's two things I want you to have in mind. This is the first one, that the fact that it's wine shows maybe that this is linked to Jesus' blood. Okay? You tracking? First thing there? Okay. Now look. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Okay. That right there gives us insight that there's some alcohol to this, just so you know. Okay? That, That shows us that there is some here. Now, again, I will say this on a side note. That's not the point of the text, but alcohol in itself is not a sin. However, if you are breaking the law by drinking it, that's a sin. Okay? If you are a stumbling block, Ashton read it just a little while ago, if a free thing that you can do causes somebody else to stumble, you don't do it. If you do it, it's a sin against them, a sin against Christ. And you cannot get drunk. Those three things. So there may be situations where you never drink because of those three things. Good, praise God. So the, the issue is not the wine itself. But as you, as you can see here, they drink it. And he's going, whoa, usually you start off with the good stuff. Then people don't really care that much. They're having a good time. They're not drunk. I'm not saying they're drunk, but they're having a good time. And then you bring in the other stuff. But you've done it. The opposite. You've done something different here. But you've kept the good wine until now. You know why it's the good wine? Because Jesus made it. Because Jesus made it. Now here's what I want you to catch. Why is it wine? First, 
the connection to his blood because it's through his blood that we are purified. So there were the water jars before where they would work and wash and try to be purified. And now it's the blood of Jesus that purifies. That's the first part. Here's the second part. The idea of wine is important in the Old Testament because it shows that peace has come. There would be wine in the end at the marriage supper of the Lamb even because it shows joy and peace have come. Listen to this out of Isaiah 25. Listen carefully. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wine that's there, and Joel it talks about that it will be so plentiful that the mountains will drip with it. Why? Because it represents joy. It represents celebration. It represents the fact that God has saved his people. And he has done what he, would say, he said he was going to do. Let me tell you quickly about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen. Out of Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints that's the the supper that's coming so this marriage feast that's happening where he turns the water into wine, what he's doing ultimately is he is saying, look, this, this marriage, this wedding, this celebration is pointing to the great wedding between us and Jesus, the great marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when he turns the water into wine, he's showing us, one, that he's going to offer a purification that is greater than anything we've ever seen. You will be cleansed. You will be purified. And... He's saying there will be rejoicing and peace for all of eternity. That's why he turns water into wine. Let's finish up the passage. Verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Notice that it says signs there, not just miracles. Do you know why? Because signs point to something. Signs point to something. It points to him. That Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. Do you notice not everybody there believes in him? Not everybody. In fact, most of the people there don't even know what happened. I told you that it would have been a great shame if they would have run out of wine. What's interesting about Jesus' purification, his death in our place for our sins, is he takes away our guilt and he purifies us, he makes us holy. But the other thing he does is he takes away our shame too. There are people all around us who do not know that they don't have to live in shame. They don't even know that he's died for their, sh- for their shame. Part of what we need to do is go tell them this beautiful truth that Jesus offers a better purification than anything else. He will pre- purify you with his blood. He will take away your, sh- your shame. And he will give you a joy in what's to come. If you're not a Christian here today and you've never believed that, the encouragement today is please, please believe so you will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb with us. If you are a believer, a couple encouragements for you today. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Rejoice in the fact that you have been purified. Don't live with shame. Do you know what shame is? The idea, let's say Caleb's playing outside. And I told him, don't go outside, don't get dirty. And Caleb goes outside and he gets dirty. And he has his clothes stained. And he comes in and he says, Dad, I disobeyed you. I'm sorry. And I say, okay, I forgive you. I've forgiven him. But if he doesn't go and change his clothes, every time he walks around, it's going to beat him up more and more that he disobeyed me. And it's going to make him sad all the time. Because he's going to constantly see the stains. Shame are the stains. Shame is the stains that are on his clothes. So what he needs to do is go and take off those clothes and wash them in the blood of the lamb so they would be white. You are not... See, guilt means I did something wrong. Shame means I'm wrong. And yes, we all were, but what we need to rejoice in is, in Jesus, we're not anymore. He scorned the shame. He said, shame, you've got no authority here. I've forgiven them completely, and I've removed it. So as a believer, live as one who knows that you do not have shame. Jesus has taken that too. And make sure you rejoice in the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. God of all grace, we love you and we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the encouragement from Mary, that we need to do what you tell us because you are worthy, because you are good, because you always want what's good for us. Help us, Lord, to do this. But even more so, Lord, help us to think about the fact that we have been purified by your blood in such an incredible way that surpasses all the rituals of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that a day is coming where there will be nothing but celebration forever. And all these issues will be gone. This this life is such a vapor. Help us to remember that. Help us to remind one another of this. 
And again, Lord, as we're going to have this time of invitation, Lord, if today's the day somebody wants to truly start following you, Lord, we pray that they would. They would come down and say, yes, I want to today. Lord, others who are already following, if they want to come and pray at the altar, if they want me to pray for them and they've got something going on, Lord, please work in their hearts. If those who want to here that want to join our faith family, become members of one another, and walk, as Ashton said before, through this life and community. Lord, we pray that they would come forward. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.